0: O Father, make us mindful of your work on earth and use us to the fullness of your glory until your work in the earth is done. And leave your spirit with us, O Lord, always to infill us with the power of God, apply to us the forgiveness of sins, and open the scriptures to our understanding. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, amen. You may be seated this morning. I'm going to ask that you turn this morning to John chapter 2. I'll read verses 13 to 25. And so John writes, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Oh, Father, may we receive a revelation of this, your holy word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So once again, we have a text that refers to the Passover, this time of year, think Passover. Easter is kind of a word that's outside of the the Christian experience. We've adopted it. I'm not saying I'm not trying to boycott it. We've adopted it. It was used once, erroneously in the King James version of the Bible, and they changed it back to Passover. Um, it was a it was a mistranslation. The word Easter was used. It is not used at all in Scripture. It refers. Um, the word itself is a name of an ancient uh, Babylonian goddess. And so we, um, we tend to, at this time of year, talk about the Passover. The Jews had Passover. They didn't have Easter. They had Passover, and Christ was the Passover. All right, so the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, you know by now that at this time of year, I talk about the Passover a lot. I talked about it on Friday night. You know, Paul said Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. He identified Jesus Christ with the Passover and the Passover with the lamb that sacrificed on the day of Passover. So I make a lot of reference to that this time of year, and I love to show the connection between the Paschal lamb and the lamb of God, as you know. The comparisons are many, and the symbolism is intended by God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. John called him that. I preached on that last week. John referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's also referred to as the Lamb throughout the book of Revelation. And so let's turn there now. Um, From Revelation we read, And remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John. This is also John the Apostle. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. So he's having a vision of heaven. And he sees God the Father sitting on the throne in heaven. And he had a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And so he says to all the host of heaven, to all the angelic beings and the strange and glorious creatures that are there in that temple praising God day and night throughout eternity, he asks, who's worthy to open the scroll? And he, said, and he writes, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, John says, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. It saddened the apostle. It saddened him that the word of God was closed. There was no one that could give us the full revelation of it. And then we read, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, of the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. I don't know what that means. A lamb as though it had been slain. Was it a bloodied lamb? Was it a lamb wearing a crown of thorns? probably something like that. It was a vision John was receiving of the resurrected Christ as the Lamb of God in heaven. And when the Lamb took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That's what incense symbolizes, our prayers going up, God, That's what sacrifices symbolize. If you read carefully in the Old Testament, you'll see that the good-smelling aroma of the roasting sacrifices was a pleasing aroma to God in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. Friends, I a worship service broke out when the lamb grabbed the scroll and all of heaven was singing songs and praising God. And then John says, and I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever friends. If the angels in heaven are going to worship the lamb, then we ought to worship the lamb here in the earth. And notice it says, and those under the earth. Friends, when Jesus Christ is revealed, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the lamb slain for our sins. Now, since the time of Moses... The Passover lambs were there to point to the one true lamb of God. That was their purpose. They were ritualistically killed and prepared. And I have labored over these themes for Easter after Easter for as long as you've known me. And so the Passover lambs, one for each family, are ritualistically killed by ceremoniously cleansed priests. And they're ceremoniously eaten, and the remains disposed of outside the camp, all relating to the facts of the life and crucifixion of Christ. And so the symbolism is escapable, and the symbolism is intentional, and the symbolism is relentless throughout the gospel narratives. And today we look into John's version, the so-called hard sayings. You remember. And Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. He speaks again symbolically of eating his flesh, the flesh of the Passover lamb. The lamb who was slain. And so we eat his flesh symbolically in the bread. And we drink his blood symbolically in the wine. Now having said all this, we're in chapter 2. This is not the Passover where Jesus goes to the cross. we got quite a few more chapters to go through before we get there. But still we find Jesus at the feast, at the Passover, preaching, kicking guys out of the temple, making a big mess. This was an earlier participation in the feast. This reference shows that Jesus attended Passover every year of his ministry. There's three Passover passages in the Gospel of John where Jesus is there. In fact, because we know that he was without sin and that he never committed any infractions of Jewish law, we know that he was present at Passover every year of his earthly life, just like every Jewish male was required to be. Don't we know that? Don't we know that? Yeah. (laughs) I thought maybe someone knows. (laughs) I know I know. (laughs) It was not a superfluous thing to take part in the feast. It wasn't just, oh, something that we do. Like, you know, we take the presents from under the tree and we all open them up at Christmas morning at dawn or something. It's not some kind of you know, little family tradition, this was handed down by God as a prescription as how you will come into the presence of God. It's not a superfluous thing to take part in the feast. In fact, it would have been wholly unrighteous for any Jew, any circumcised covenant partner with God to forego eating the Passover according to its meticulous prescription. Remember the law of Moses which says, in one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. Remember Jesus very famously was crucified with two other men. And they came out in the Roman fashion and broke the legs of the other men because it hastens death. And they came to Jesus. And being the Passover lamb, it was unlawful to break his bones, and they realized he was dead, and they didn't perform the procedure. You shall not break one of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep the Passover. Even then, it had to be done in faith. Even then, though the participants paid close attention to every symbolical detail, it was an efficacious act of acceptable worship of the one true God. And so even the Messiah partook of the Passover year after year of his life. Even Jesus attended the feasts and ate the meat and drank the wine and dipped the bitter herbs in oil. It was all done with a great redemptive purpose. But at this particular festival, early in his ministry, this is very early in Jesus' ministry, he had another purpose in mind, than simply revealing the fulfillment of Passover prophecy. You see, just as Jesus was the fulfillment of the partial symbols of Hebrew history, so was he, the mag- so was the magnificent temple structure, a symbol of the holy place where a sanctified worshiper could come into contact with holy God. Just as the lamb, friends, was not the lamb... Neither was the temple the temple. You follow me? He came to show us a couple of things. Even the great temple, which Karen found a really nice picture of it to put on the front of your bulletins today. That's what it looked like. We know what it looked like. It's great to see a model of it or a really good drawing of it. That great edifice, that great temple, which they all um, said took Herod's, 46 years to build. He started, obviously, before Jesus' time, rebuilding the temple. It was... It far surpassed the glory of Solomon's temple. By the way, it wasn't finished. It really ended up taking 63 years. It was done in A.D. 63, and they destroyed it in A.D. 70. It really stood in its full glory only seven years if you look into the history of the temple itself. But at this particular festival... He was trying to show that just as the Lamb is symbolic of the Lamb of God, so is the great, magnificent temple structure only a symbol of the holy place where God resides. Jesus himself is the Holy of Holies. He was the repository of the living spirit of the living God. Let me introduce you a little bit to this temple complex. Everybody could come in to the square into the greater complex, the pavement, as it was called. Anybody could come. There were were tourists from all over the world who would come and see this great thing. It was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world in its time. Jews aren't known for great buildings. That's a Greek and Roman thing, (laughs) right? But this building was a great building. And people would come just to see it and just to see this ancient ceremony carried out during Passover. So anyone could come into the pavement. But then there was the rail, the Soreg. And it, was, it separated Jew from Gentile. And the Gentiles could not go past the rail. Even Herod himself could not enter beyond the Soreg. He was an Edomite. He was a Hellenized Jew, if you will. And so it was said he couldn't even enter the place where only the Jews can go. Beyond the Soreg was the temple courtyard. It was called the Court of the Women. It had four great lampstands, gigantic structures with fires on top. And the women could gather there, but they couldn't go any deeper into the temple complex. And then was the great hall of the temple, and the Jewish men would go in there, and the priests would chant and pray And then beyond that chamber, that was called the holy place, beyond that was the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant, and in the ark of the covenant was the Ten Commandments and the rod of Aaron. And only the high priest could go into the holy of holies, and he could only go in once a year. He could only go in when he was ritualistically cleaned or bad things would happen to him in there because God took certain things seriously, right? Sometimes God gets mad. Jesus broke all their stuff, turned over their tables, and that's more what this passage is about. And so we read verses 14 through 16, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, I always picture this, he walked by a rattan salesman and he took up his product and the guy said, what are you doing? He pushed him away and he made himself a whip and he started driving the money changers out out of the temple. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. They had to herd these things out. They were selling them for sacrifices. It was temple stock. It was certified stock. You'd bring your stuff there, your lamb that you picked from your flock, according to the law, and they'd say, no, it's defective. You have to buy one of ours. And they would make profit, you see. They wanted you to buy their certified temple stock. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. This is not a bodega. This is God's temple. Now there's a lot of theories as to why and how this action of the so-called money changes was corrupt. I'm not going to talk about that today. Um, But I want to consider other things pertaining to this incident. First, though the temple was magnificent, it was yet, as I've said, a symbol of holiness. But even the symbols of holiness must be holy, that is, set apart for holy use. You weren't going to have a concert in the temple. You weren't going to set up a stage and bring in the speakers and have Billy Joel come out and start rocking the place. That wasn't going to happen. There wasn't going to be a fundraiser. They weren't going to play bingo in the temple. There were certain things that the temple was reserved for. It was a holy place, and it angered the Lord that they were misusing it. Now, you know what oxen and sheep do, right? Right? You got any animals? That's not what the temple was intended to be, you see. And so they were selling the livestock and the profit motive. These were the things that defiled the specific holy use of the temple of God. Now, have you ever noticed one thing, though? And I've I've said this to you before. Maybe remember. No one objected to the fact that the selling of animal sacrifices was corrupt. No one said, stop that. They're doing a good service. No one, they knew they were dishonoring God's temple, right? I always thought they came in, you know, the disciples came in with Jesus. By the way, if you're careful in your chronology, he actually did this action twice. All right? In the other, in the synoptics, he does it later on in his ministry life. But can you imagine him walking in there with his disciples And he decides to go berserk on these money changers and he's throwing everything all over the place. And after he was done, I'm surprised Peter didn't grab him and say, let's get out of here before the cops come. But he didn't even move. And no one tried to arrest him or stop him. They didn't care that he did it in a sense because they knew it was wrong. But they said, but what authority do you have to tell us what to do? That's what they were concerned about here. They were questioning Jesus' authority to enforce what was clearly temple law. Buying and selling and profiting within the sacred walls was obviously forbidden. Now notice how John loves to point out that the Messiah's every act hearkens back to a prophecy. So after he whipped the money changers and disrupted their trade, we read this. Then the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten you up zeal for your house, has eaten you up. From Psalm 69, verse 9. It's a direct quote. Friend, every act, his presence there, his zeal to cleanse it, his insistence upon devotional decorum and mosaic formality, turn the thoughts of the thoughtful to consider the great moment in redemptive history. That they were all privileged to be born into. I labored over that somewhat next week, uh, last week rather, when um, Jesus came on the scene to be baptized and John called him the Lamb of God. They were expectant, they were expectant that the Messiah was coming soon. So he did all these things, and even his wrath and indignation, friends, was testimony to who he was by the virtue of a prophecy fulfilled. Even his zeal and his anger, his righteous indignation at sin was testimony of who he was. He does not answer fools according to their folly. Jesus, you ever notice he never let himself be put on the defensive? By what authority do you do this? He didn't answer him. He gave his own prescription, which we'll get to. His wrath was vented when divine law was abrogated by human greed, it just enraged him. Friends, it was probably very convenient to just go to the temple and buy your dove there. But convenience does not always comport with holiness, does it? Pragmatism, do you know what pragmatism is? It's doing something for a utilitarian end. It's like being practical all the time. We love to be practical. I'm a practical guy. But pragmatism is not the primary motive behind divine observances. It's practical to exchange money for approved sacrifices, but it's not holy. Commerce is a good thing, so long as it's done in a good place or a proper place. Living with your girlfriend may seem convenient and cost-effective. I've heard that enough times, but it's heinous sin before God, and anyone who practices fornication should begin to clean his temple with the same godly zeal with which the Savior cleansed his. We all have a temple. I'm reminded of the passage of the anger of Samuel when Saul did something like this. Saul transgressed the clear command of God concerning the accursed things, intermingling among holy orders. And so we read that after the battle of King Saul with the Amalekites, when the children of Israel were commanded to destroy all of their stuff, they weren't supposed to profit from the booty, right? They were supposed to destroy it all. And Saul and his men reason among themselves that, you know, I know God said destroy it all, but don't you think he's being a little excessive in this case? I mean, it's a lot of nice stuff. This is what we do. Well, Samuel wasn't having it, and he was a type of Christ in this. So Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed, I have performed the commandment of the Lord, knowing full well he had not. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen. What are those noises about? And Saul answers, well, look, people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. So the people sacrificed to the Lord of the very things he claimed to hate. Because why? It was convenient. Sometimes, friends, the details matter. And so there's Saul feasting with Agag. I saw a movie of this once. I I have to say, I think it was Richard Gere who played David in that movie. Does anyone remember it? He had to have been very young. Well, Samuel comes up to the cave. They were in a cave. He sort of made his military office in the cave, and he has Agag in there with him. And Samuel walks up to the cave, and the two guards throw their swords in front of the opening to the gate, and they say, you can't enter. The king is in conference, and Samuel throws them aside. It says, since when do the affairs of state take precedence over the affairs of God? And he charges in. I thought they did a good job with that. And so Samuel goes in and he said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. Now you may wonder, why did God seem to hate these Amalekites so much? Well, let me just remind you that God was being vengeful against them because as soon as the children of Israel went through the Red Sea, the Amalekites attacked them. They were in no pre- position to defend themselves it was clear that God led them through that sea and these men could clearly see these were God's special people and they attacked them and the Lord did not take that well and so Agag came to Samuel cautiously and Agag said I always picture that like this he says surely the bitterness of death is past (laughs) Uh, not so much Samuel said, as your sword has made woman childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. He became the instrument of God's zeal. He was cleansing a holy campaign of its sin. Sometimes the details matter. I understand that Saul's party took a decided downturn after the incident. It's kind of like when the parents come home early from a long trip and find the kids using the formal living room for a, a drinking party. Only less so. And everyone's unceremoniously thrown out the door. Verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Now I think we all know by now that Jesus is not usually too accommodating to those who ask for signs, right? Show us a sign, he said, the only sign that will be given you is a sign of the prophet Jonah. As Jonah was in the great fish three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the bowels of the earth three days and three nights, and no one knew what he was talking about. It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign be careful what you teach your children because when I was putting the sign up at the top of the road there, I asked Joseph to help me and he didn't feel like helping me when he was was younger. And he said, Dad, it's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. Be careful what you teach your children. They use it against you. And there he is. (laughs) Sorry, Joe. Joe's gonna be sorry he came home for Easter. (laughs) <laughs> no, Jesus isn't usually patient about you know, he said you, you played the, we played the flute for you and you did not dance we mourned and, uh, uh, or we, uh, how does it go? We, we mourned and you didn't mourn with us so something to that effect he doesn't jump to your tune so as I've said, no one seemed to deny the rightness of the cleansing of the temple only the authority to carry it out and now they wanted a sign to establish that he was some kind of prophetic trickster Was it not miracle enough for them that an itinerant preacher walks into their midst and runs roughshod over their enterprises? That was a sign. Such an action was certainly reminiscent of John the Baptist, who was no cow tower to human authority. He famously lost his head for pointing out the sin of King Herod Antipas, which was fornication, was adultery. He said it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife And the wife, Herodias, was another brother's daughter. It was his niece. They were passing her around, the family. That was the Herods for you. With regard to asking for signs, though, Paul comments on Israel's lust for signs. Jews request a sign, he wrote. Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness but to those of us who were being called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Friends, in this gospel record, many of Jesus' detractors would witness the resurrection of Lazarus. A lot of them witnessed to the resurrection of Lazarus later on in chapter 11. And rather than bow down to the Lord Jesus, they schemed all the more as to how to destroy both Jesus and Lazarus. Friends, signs are overrated. They don't make converts, at least not necessarily, and people tend to forget them. Now, I may be going out on a limb here, but Jesus' mother, Mary, certainly had a sign from God. She had a child by the Holy Spirit. But it seems later in life, she needed more verification of who he was, it seems to me. Jesus did not commit himself to them, John wrote, because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. It it isn't a sign that you need. You don't need a verifying miracle. You need humility before God. Get on your knees, read his word, and do what's prescribed. So no one disputed the rightness of cleansing the temple, only his authority to do so. And strangely, there's some critics, some commentators wonder if he ever if this interchange ever occurred at all but all throughout the new testament we see we see the synoptists speaking about it matthew writes two false witnesses came forward and said this fellow said boy they should have got zapped just for calling jesus this fellow i'm able to destroy the temple of god and to build it in three days From Mark we read, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I'll build another made without hands. Friends, he didn't say that. He didn't say, I'll destroy this temple. He didn't say, I'm able to destroy this temple, although that would have been fair, would have been correct, he is able. I want to tell you something, this may or may not be known to you, if you're in law enforcement, you may know. Eye and ear witnesses are notoriously unreliable. Eyewitnesses are unreliable. You ever watch courtroom d- drama or any movies or anything? They, they got the witness up there and they say, What happened? And they always say two things. They go, Well, it was dark that night. And, and then they say, And everything happened so fast. <laughs> that right away you know the person <laughs> doesn't know what he or she saw or what he or she heard because he didn't say that. Of course, Matthew's saying they're false witnesses, they're trying to charge him with something he didn't do. But insofar as Jesus performing signs for the curious, I should say there are a few things that there are a few things that seem to anger the Savior more than calling upon him to entertain us. Remember this passage? They mocked him and beat him. Having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy. Who's the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. And even after this humiliation of the Lord, he's bloodied, he's humiliated. We read of Herod's delight to meet the preacher from Nazareth. And this is what Luke writes. Now when Herod saw Jesus, and this was after the events I just described, right, right? When Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. He thought he was a magician. a magician, going to do a trick, make something disappear. You may remember when some of the Jews asked for a sign, he said, oh, we read this, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, an evil evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. In verse 19 we read Jesus answered and said to them destroy this temple and in 3 days I'll raise it up. That's what he said. He didn't say I'll destroy this temple. He didn't say I'm able to destroy this temple. He said destroy this temple. Now I used to be an English teacher, so I'm going to give you a little lesson in grammar this morning. First of all, look at the irony of it. The irony in John's account with regard to the sign that Jesus himself portends. The destruction of the temple, right? Now, I think we all know by now that Jesus never said that he himself would destroy the temple. Those were false witnesses. Rather, he said something quite different and really quite extraordinary. He said, destroy this temple. It's an imperative he said, destroy this temple, like close that door, like let there be light. He's giving a command. Destroy, he said, this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Think of it this way. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, destroy this temple, and they destroyed it. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what we call Joanine irony. If, it, if Matthew wrote it, we'd call it Matthean irony. If Peter wrote it, we'd call it Petrine. Paul, Pauline, Luke, Lucan. You get it. Welcome to my world. Joanine irony. He commanded them to destroy the temple. They accuse him of despising the great stone temple, and they proceed to carry out the command and they destroy the actual temple of God, the very body of Christ. You following the irony of John? They became the sign they themselves were seeking. They destroyed the temple. They are the destroyers, and it is he who rebuilds. Dr. Morris, uh, Leon Morris, uh, writes this. There's further irony in that to put Jesus to death was to offer the one sacrifice that can truly expiate sin and thus doom the temple as a place for offering of sacrifices. They put Jesus to death. That was really the end of the temple. Had no need anymore. The final sacrifice was made. The place of sacrifice is obsolete. Their killing of Christ doomed the temple to destruction. For God would not allow animal sacrifices to continue after the one true lamb of God was put to death. It would be an abomination to pretend that the killing of lambs had any redemptive effect after the killing of the Christ was complete. For us to offer a sacrifice today would be to say the blood of Christ wasn't enough. It was not sufficient to atone for our sin. It's a blasphemy to say that. And we all know that less than 40 years after this exchange in the temple pavement that day... Between Jesus and his detractors, the very temple in which they were standing would be destroyed by Titus's army. And so the actual physical stone temple was destroyed by Titus, who became Caesar. It was destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. John is the only evangelist that offers the statement in the fullness of its redemptive intent. We read this, he was speaking of the temple of, of his body. little editorial note from John to wake up the reader. This is not the only place in Scripture that refers to his body, or for that matter, our bodies as temples. Same word. Nios, I believe. Even the temple of the Holy Spirit, friends. He does not live in temples made with hands, Paul said to the Athenians, who were standing in a great city of Athens with all the great pagan temples. Paul lays it out quite literally to the church at Corinth about cleansing our temples. He said, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And then he says this, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is the temple. And you have the example of how to cleanse it. Throw all of the offensive things out of it your body is the temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god and you are not your own in other words you're stewards of that temple your job's just to keep it clean it isn't yours it belongs to someone else if you're a believer your body is your temple it is the holy of holies it is the dwelling place of god's holy spirit So Paul goes further with his example. With regard to sexual sin, which is the equivalent of dirtying up the temple, he writes, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Friends, either we clean up our temples or the Lord will come and do it for us with great zeal. For Zeal for his house has eaten him up and it should eat us up as well. What we should begin to see here is that Jesus' words become reality. They fulfilled their part. They destroyed the temple of his body. And he did his part. He raised it up again in three days. And they killed him for saying so. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, John writes, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. John does a couple of really wonderful things with this, with this verse. Number one, he equates Jesus' word, yet unwritten, right, to God's word already written. The scriptures in Jesus' word are equivalent, They're from the same source. They were aware that Revelation was continuing and that their Messiah was God and that their gospel was the word of God. Jesus was writing the gospel by speaking. He never wrote anything. He spoke, he dictated, and they wrote. Number two, and I think perhaps more importantly, he speaks of resurrection, the fact of it, the taking up of his own dead body and depositing life back into it as the greatest evangelistic tool we have, not to mention the only sign he's willing to offer. Tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they believed. Resurrection piques the interest of everyone. That's why I always say, when they ask me to speak at a, at a funeral, I don't know where the man's soul has gone. It's, there's, two, there's two possible places. According into Scripture. But I do know that I have a captive audience that day that wants to hear about eternal life. I do know that resurrection is a great, redemptive, evangelistic tool. Keep this always in mind. The resurrection of Christ is a historical event. You're reading history when you read about it. It's an event that's verified by every forensic technique that we use to authenticate any other historical event. It's not different. Yeah, we receive it by faith, but it's verifiably historically accurate. What are some of the ways? First, there's a whole bunch of eyewitnesses, right? I mean, hundreds, maybe thousands of eyewitnesses. Now, I know they're unreliable sometimes, but they can't all be wrong. They're all claiming to have seen it, right? So there's a myriad of eyewitnesses. Secondly, there are several written accounts of its historicity from the period in which it happened. And they're both biblical and extra-biblical sources. Writers wrote about it in its time when it happened. That's what we call primary source material, right? Every test we use to verify whether something actually happened is present in the resurrection. The same things we use to test whether there was a revolutionary war in 1776 we used to verify whether Jesus rose from the dead in the first century. And equally important are the effects of the resurrection on human governments and societies. Everything changed after that. Indeed, all of civilization was infected by the new religion. The existence of Christianity, I think, stands as great evidence that the resurrection actually happened. The existence of a huge and robust following of adherents, that's you and me, to the words and promises of Jesus of Nazareth is a great testimony to the fact of history that Jesus rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. And the best evidence of all is our unquenchable hope in his promise. Where does that hope come from? Is it just a fantasy? And I'll leave you with these words. I go to prepare a place for you. You know, I've, I've asked in the past, what if the Gospels ended with him going into the tomb? What would we be left with? No resurrection, right? No rising up on, th- on the third day. Nobody run into the tomb to find him. Suppose the Gospel record just ended. We would still say, well, we have a great God and a great Savior. I'm not quite sure what's in it for me other than the great teaching and the invitation to pray and maybe be healed of my illnesses or helped through my life in difficult places, maybe all of these things. But what's in it for us without the resurrection? Right? What's in it for us? But here he tells us, I go to prepare a place for you. This isn't all about me, friends. I didn't have to die to redeem myself, he says. I died to redeem you. I was without sin. I left a heavenly paradise to come down here and be beaten by these impudent soldiers. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, praise God. There's no Christianity without the second coming. (laughs) It's coming. And then he says, that where I am, you may be also. Our Savior wants to be with us. And we know it. And I hope you know it. And I'll get you ready for next week now. You ready from Romans chapter 8? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Friends. Your, your salvation, your resurrection was guaranteed by Christ before the foundation of the world. The fact that the earth is here means you'll be resurrected. It's evidence that his word brings things into being. He calls things that are not as though they were and then they are. So whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Amen? Amen. O oh, Father, in Jesus' name, let these things sink down into our hearts and renew us, and nourish us daily with the word of God. Father, put us on our knees and hear the prayers of the saints, and redeem our land, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.